0: This is the Self-Taught or Not podcast with Dylan Israel and Eric Hanchett, where we teach you the do's and don'ts of software development from two software development professionals, one self-taught and one not.
1: All right. So Eric and I just talking business for a bit, and then I said, we got to get back to this business. And today we have what Eric has called the smorgasbord episode, where we're going to address some criticism. We're going to talk about some shit we want to talk about that doesn't really dedicate uh, a full episode, but things that I that we think are important, and uh, probably a few other little things in between.
0: Yeah, so what, what do we want to do today is just talk about uh, some of these episodes that we've done in the past. We had some comments on them, a lot of good, a little bit of bad. So I thought maybe we'd just talk about it. And also, there's a few things I didn't get to in some of these other episodes. And if we have time, we'll jump into a, a few other topics. So I want to go back in time. So if you're listening to this right now, check out, if you haven't already listened to, listen to the imposter syndrome episode. It's episode 10. And this was kind of a combination episode where we talked about imposter syndrome and then we talked about negative mindsets. So we talked about like what people think of different technologies and and a little bit of shaming other developers. And I think the point we had, and Dylan correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's okay to have opinions about frameworks you like and you don't like. And that's, that's perfectly fine. But then we kind of draw the line if you're shaming other people.
1: Yeah. And I I think I am a little bit of a brash person and most of the time I'm kidding, but I, I do think sometimes people get a little bit too, like the fact that we have to even respond to this criticism about people being butthurt about me talking about libraries and frameworks is sort of my whole point of, teasing people about this stuff but um i think we should be able to maybe give our opinions on these things but again they're just opinions that's it uh sometimes if there are facts that go with these things they'll be mentioned yeah so let's let's dive in so i want
0: to start with a comment that i got on the episode and and if you ever want to comment on any of these episodes we have our code tech and caffeine facebook group where you can create a, a post about it or Dylan on his YouTube channel posts every single episode of the podcast. So you can also comment there. But one of the comments I got was that I think there was a. People misinterpreted what I said about imposter syndrome. So let me give you guys a little bit of recap. In the episode, I said that imposter syndrome is uh, a debilitating problem that a lot of new developers have. And it's this feeling that you don't belong, that you don't you didn't earn what, you're, what you have accomplished. And I kind of took a view on that that said, well, maybe the reason that some people are feeling imposter syndrome is because maybe they just have anxiety. And I, I really think that I didn't word it well. I think I downplayed that what some people really th- feel. And for that, um, I apologize. I probably should have said it a little bit more elegantly, and what I was just trying to say is that and I think Dylan would agree that we are both very confident people. Like we are very confident in our abilities. We we believe we both believe we deserve to be where we are at in our careers. So sometimes thinking back on where we were when we first started, it's it's a little bit more difficult. And I think Dylan could probably relate more to than me, but when I was first starting, I did have these feelings of imposter syndrome where no, I didn't think I was good enough and the accomplishments that I had, I didn't deserve them. I, I do think that hard work played a lot into it. That I wasn't, you know, just because I have a computer science degree, I wasn't just given or handed a job. I had to work my butt off. I failed. If you listen to my episode when I was working as uh doing tech support for a a company for a few years you know i had to really work my butt off to to go to school and work at the same time and then when i graduated i lost my job and i had to to find a new one i had just got married so you know i worked my butt off computer science degree helped but it was a lot about me putting the time in and i did have some of those feelings but I, I think a lot of it the hard work is is what pushed me through i know what do you think dylan
1: yeah so imposter syndrome is an interesting thing and i think something a lot of people suffer with i think specifically about um, you know people like myself who are self-taught who when they're getting into the industry they might think like oh you know in my you know i've had a conversation with my girlfriend who's a little nervous to start applying for jobs because she's like you know i don't know shit like like, and, and there's some truth to that and there's some apprehension that goes along with it but um i think it's perfectly healthy, that that is something that stays in the past. And there are even times now where I think about going back to school. And I think, I think that's related to a bit of lingering imposter syndrome, but there's nothing wrong with being confident in your abilities and trying and overcoming that and, and thinking that, you know what, I've earned this and I deserve this. And I've put in the time and effort to accomplish it.
0: Exactly. Would you say, if you are just starting out and you're starting to feel this way, that you, know, you don't deserve the accomplishments that you've gotten, but really maybe the only accomplishment you got was you studied, and, but you haven't gotten that first job and you're feeling this feeling. Isn't it true, though, that you really haven't accomplished anything? So this isn't technically imposter syndrome. Maybe the only thing you accomplished is you studied. That's what I was trying to make the distinction of. I don't know.
1: I, and I I think a lot of stuff, like I, one thing that I hate about imposter syndrome is it seems to be this catch-all for like getting it early on in your career. It People are like, oh, I'm anxious about starting a new career. Of course, who wouldn't be? I'm anxious about getting a new job. Oh, of course, who wouldn't be? I'm anxious about keeping my job. Of course, who wouldn't be? Like it's it's a little bit too broad. And so like I think part of what people are picked up on in that episode is it definitely seems to be one of those items that people are okay with lingering in their life and throwing into this bucket. And maybe my thought is, let's, it's, it's okay in minute doses, but we need, it needs to be something that isn't part of our lives.
0: Yes. And if it is a part of your life, then I think maybe talking to someone else, talking to maybe a therapist or just taking, I always, I always remember the poor man's therapy is just taking long walks <laughs> and just and just trying to think over things. I don't know. Just uh, I I want to acknowledge that this is real and it happens to a lot of people and I emphasize it's hard for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, and I would say Did I cut out there? A little a little bit, but I, I think everyone got the the sentiment of uh Eric understands. <laughs> Any, <laughs> any, he, he, he wants you to, to feel good. Um, part of what I would say, sort of my closing comment on that, is that if you are dealing with imposter syndrome, get so good that there's no way you're an imposter. That that would be you'll you'll be the the developer that is so good at work that it'll be very self evident by those who are you surround yourself with.
0: That's that's a good way to end that. Okay, so another thing, another comment that came up a lot during this imposter syndrome episode, actually. Not a lot, just a couple of comments. Was you had mentioned we had mentioned PHP, and PHP is, is the punching bag of people kind of crap on PHP a little bit. And I think modern PHP with Laravel and all the different frameworks is, is awesome, but it still feels like it's not as popular. And I think at the end you had mentioned something about um, 90% of the web is ran by WordPress sites, basically PHP, but that was 90% of the web. Uh, the web that people don't go to. And I think that was a joke, and, I, and some people may have taken that the wrong way.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's somewhat of a joke. It's somewhat true. So um, it's a joke <laughs> because it's, uh, yes, a, a large portion of the web actually is based off PHP, but a large portion of that is sort of um, pre layerville PHP, and um, if you look at a lot of sort of modern sites that people are using, they're not typically architected in PHP, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but more so, I just like to shit on PHP. There's a few, there's few technologies that I have no problem uh, poking fun at. jQuery is one of them. Oh, my God, I hate me some jQuery. PHP, Bootstrap, Internet Explorer. Uh, there's probably a few more, but those are the ones that come to mind.
0: <laughs> so, so do you think that a lot of, there's just like a lot of websites out there that are dead, that used to be old WordPress sites? Is that kind of your thought behind it?
1: Uh no 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 so um I would so dead is like a hard term so there's a lot of PHP sites that probably aren't being actively maintained and there's not really all that much. It's like the PHP sites I in my mind fall into legacy development and that doesn't mean that there's not new projects being spun up, but I would say that's that's the exception to the rule.
0: Okay, okay. Well, we'll leave it at that. Uh, I- if you guys have. Any more comments <laughs> about our imposter syndrome? You can.
1: <laughs> I think people who are upset about our PHP my, or my PHP comments are still gonna be upset after this. Uh, way this comment. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Uh,
0: well, let's let's talk about dependency issues. So, in episode seventeen it was the tech ran episode. And speaking of jQuery, that's the one where you'd mentioned that you don't like jQuery. Uh, honestly, I think. I didn't see any negativity about that. I think people realize that jQuery and some of these other language or frameworks, libraries, people are still using. That uh, they are kind of getting less popular. They're not. They are being used as cruxes for a lot of developers, and I think your point was, and a lot of this was that it's okay to use jQuery, but you should know. But if you're using jQuery instead of doing it outside of jQuery or you're using these UI component libraries when you can actually create the component and you don't know how to create the component, then that's a problem.
1: Yeah, I I think there's a large... There's a good portion of our job which is finding the right tool for the job, but there's also a good portion of our job where it's actually building that tool. And um, people oftentimes don't build things enough and it's kind of crazy because like that's uh, what you usually think of when you're getting started like oh hey i'm gonna build this item and uh you know there's a little bit of uh so i i my to, i guess to summarize my my issue is that developers are being dependent upon libraries rather than fundamentals and core technologies
0: yeah i agree with that wholeheartedly in fact you put your money where your mouth is you're creating a new course where you say, hey, look, I created 100 components. I didn't even use a library. This is how you do it, which is pretty phenomenal. Do you want to plug that?
1: Oh, sure. Was that, that was a layout. Well, it's not out yet, but it will be, and uh, it'll be the uh, 100 Angular challenge, and we'll have a couple spinoffs eventually, but uh, it's uh, pretty cool stuff. Not only are we building um, components, we're building services, directives, all the sort of stuff that you'd expect in an Angular course. That was a layup and I completely fluffed it, didn't I?
0: <laughs> and yeah, and if people want to get to know more about that, then just follow you on YouTube, I'm sure. You'll
1: yeah, be yeah I'll, be pl- I'll be plugging it there <laughs> with the alley oop plugs. All right.
0: <laughs> For sure. And one thing I wanted to mention on episode 17, the Tech Grid episode, is that I mentioned about dependencies and how kind of terrible they are, and and how we have one. Package that relies on another package that relies on another package. And if one package downstream breaks, it breaks everything. And someone rightly commented that, and we were talking specifically about LeftPad, that with the package.lock.json file helps kind of prevent some of those because the package lock file will make sure you have a specific version of code. And that should be in your repository too. That should be checked in and then that it's less likely for packages downstream to break and to break your package.
1: Yeah, I think less likely this is the key there because I've had plenty of times where my package lock has been jacked up and I had to delete that and then reinstall all my dependencies. Yeah.
0: All right, so that's all I want to talk about on episode 17, the Tech Grant episode. So let's deep dive into a little bit more and I, I kind of have an update this so we had this episode five where we're talking about living in an agile world and i think this is one of our most popular episodes and uh, a lot of people liked it, including the money episode that we did at the beginning and and dylan's episode too well uh i think going back to some of our talk about this and we talked a lot about how there's these different steps in an agile workflow where you were you have this time where you're creating and and you're getting ready for the sprint beforehand and then the sprint starts and then you have like a demo and a retrospective at the end and then you have backlog grooming sessions and you have and I just wanted to say that you know being in a business that has tried in a few businesses that have tried to adhere to this agile workflow, it's really there's no perfect solution. And what I mean by that is um, I've seen this happen a lot. And something we didn't touch on in the episode was that it the story process uh, where you actually the maybe management has an idea and they bring it down to product and the product works with business analysts or maybe the product owner themselves to write the stories and then it usually gets tasked out by development that process is uh, oftentimes breaks down and and what I mean by that is like sometimes what the product owners are wanting, they'll maybe write in the story, but it's pretty vague. And then by the time it gets to the developers, they'll try to implement what they believe is the story wants. But what the story wants isn't isn't necessarily what the actual um, developer perceives it as. So you'll get times where the developer will create something, and then once QA and product owner looks at it, they'll be like, well, that's not really what we want. So there's this kind of dichotomy: should the product owners spend hours and hours to put every little tiny detail in the story, that way the developer can know exactly what the product owner wants, or should they create like just some vague, but maybe what's how much time should they put into writing the story versus how much time? Um. The, the developer has to work on it and how how is that collaboration i just want to throw that out there i don't know if i know a great solution but what do you think about that dylan
1: yeah so i i mean i have an opinion about this that's slightly different than what's the real world is and i would say generally speaking your product owner their full-time job isn't just being a product owner they're oftentimes maybe a um Uh, executive that's doing other things and you're building this product for a portion of the business that they oversee and so you know you might see them once a week once every two weeks and they might spend a fourth of their time doing the sort of product owner role now i have been always been of the mindset that if i don't if i'm unclear i send it back i don't care if you want it tomorrow um this is what it is and sometimes i'll create some resources maybe i'll pull out balsamic to, to if it's a ui thing sometimes i'll you know, I, I always don't mind interacting with the product owner, but my scrum masters and business analysts try and keep me the hell away from them, I guess. Uh, so I'll have them go and say, listen, you gotta, you gotta go get more detail. If they don't do it, it it doesn't get done. So they go and do it. Um, but that's my, my center. Now I would like to live in a world where we have product owners who are dedicated 40 hours a week. But I, I don't necessarily know that that is unless you're building a commercial application where you plan on selling it, which a good portion of good portion of developers are building things for internally, like for business use that maybe they'll commercialize at some point. Um, but I would say that's probably not the norm.
0: I see. I think I've had. I've, I've worked at companies where we had a dedicated product owner and they work really close with the executive management, but they're not executive management. So we, there was no, like you can't contact the product owner. If we had to do a demo or if I had a question, I would just hit them up on Slack. But I know some organizations like the product owner is, is like a VP or someone really high up and you're like, Ooh, I can't bother them. But at that point, I think that the roles are misaligned. I don't know. What What do you think? You think,
1: well, I mean, I, I typically would like to go through the business analyst, uh, because it's the business analyst that's usually working with the product owner to generate the stories and really, really understand the product, whether what the pro, you know, I, I look at this, this the product owner is the want, this is what I want. And this is the vision. The business analyst needs to understand the product and be able to communicate that. So they're kind of the middleman. So it's not always that the product owner is unavailable in the sense of like, oh hey, we don't deal with these peon devs, right? <laughs> it's a, uh, it's more you know you could have a product owner that actually manages three different products and they they have a limited amount of time, and so like they can't go into all these details. At all. So I think at the end of the day, I pr- I'd like to be able to go and reach out to these people, and I do when I can. Uh, when it's appropriate. But um, I also try not to step a little bit too much on the the business analyst's toes because that, that it does, in my eyes, fall into their job category a bit.
0: Sometimes in organizations, your product owner is also a product manager. And sometimes those are synonymous, like the product manager is the same as the product owner. And some, like I have, I've worked at a few places where we don't have business analysts. And so the product owner has to write up the requirements, has to put them in the stories. And then, yeah, there's no one in the middle term. I, I know also having a dedicated UX person, especially for the front end, that can kind of intercept the product owner's stories before they get to the developer is really handy because then they can work with the product owner and the business analyst to actually put a sketch together of what it's supposed to look like. And I think, a, what's the, what is it, picture is worth a thousand words? Sometimes yeah. that really helps, Yeah, especially I- when you're trying trying to work with a complicated feature.
1: I think it's worth mentioning too because we're throwing out a lot of roles and you know if you've probably picked up that some things are different by company and that's true. It also depends how large of a company you work at and how financially, you know, secure they are because you know at smaller companies you're going to wear a lot of hats, right? You're going to be the front end, the back end, the UI UX. You might be the product owner for all you know, right? You might be QA. And as you sort of progress in your career and you go to larger companies that have a bit of a bigger bankroll what you'll start to see is that not only do you sort of uh, niche down, but the roles around you do where now people are specializing in things. And, um, you know, this, so some of these roles may overlap at certain companies and it may be dependent on size and money and how much they're, you know, how important the project is to them.
0: It's funny. You can go and work at a company where you are doing UI, UX, front end, maybe even some of the back end but you're paid less than someone that's just doing the front end at a bigger company because the reason they don't have that many positions open is cuz they probably can't afford it. So let's keep an eye out on that.
1: It is somewhat comical that as your career progresses, you do less and get paid more. Like I said, it's there's something very funny about that. At least that's that's sort of in my opinion.
0: And I think by do less you mean you're not stretched as much, you're just specializing in one thing because you end up doing not the same amount of work you just don't have 10 things to separate your mind with
1: yeah yeah i would say that two parts there one um you're doing one less task but more of it and two it the the worst pain of the job the more they want the more that is expected typically it's like and the more hours they want out of you at least that's been my experience where it's like you're and, and it's kind of the growing pains of getting experience. You got to take what you can get and then you move on to better companies and bigger companies and better benefits and stuff like that. And um, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, though. It's kind of comical.
0: Hey, you've, you've, I want to touch on one other thing. You mentioned during that episode that you have reviews at the end of each sprint and then you combine it with your retrospective. And you said that your product owner's are so busy sometimes they can 't make it to the reviews is that still the case, or did you guys and how does that work with a retrospective if the product owner's in there? Do they just listen to you guys gripe about what was wrong with the sprint
1: yeah so um and it's so it, i i haven 't had that issue at my current company where um, the product owner isn 't showing up to see the product um, they 're actively invested, but I have been at other parts of the company at other companies where they only showed up for like major releases, not fine tunings. And, but they would on their own time, go through the, the web app and see what's there and, you know, um, go through it and they empowered the the project manager and BA there. But in terms of the retrospective, we include our, um, we include our product owner and everybody else, um, literally director, senior directors for like, <laughs> which is, which is um, interesting. Cause like part of it is I'm very vocal. So like, I got something to say every sprint, but there are a lot of people who are a little bit more shy who they're like, it's not uncommon for the average person to be like, want to just put a smile on and be like, everything's great. Everything's great. I swear to God, everything's great. Uh, We got high up people here. Um, But sometimes people just need to remember like they're just normal people like everybody else and they want to be involved, right? They don't want you to, there's plenty of other people just lying straight to their face. So if there's issues, you need to raise those issues up so that they can get resolved because they might actually be the people that say, Hey, we're going to get this resolved. And one thing that I I can say that they have had a hand in was the project that I was on had no testing. I was like, this is going to solve an issue. And I harped on it for about three retros. And now our app is at like 60% tested and on its way to be about 90% within the next three months. And we have less bugs in production. And so like, if you're not going to tell them, and sometimes it's a little hard because you, you don't want to send a messenger. That's one thing. And the messenger oftentimes is the project manager, is the business analyst. And if you have opportunities to take advantage of like, no messenger, this is the message. This is the message. There's no nothing in between. You should take advantage of that.
0: And I like the idea too of, this is speaking up during your retrospectives, but also, I think if you have a problem with a particular person, you never call out someone in any of these meetings. At least I i don't think you should. But you could bring that up to your manager later. I like the idea of of keeping some of these negative things private. But more the general things, what the retrospective is for, is is for you to get out and talk about the process and, and what you liked and didn't like about it.
1: Yeah, and I, I, we sort of harped on the negative aspects. But that doesn't mean that you can't... Speak positively about other things about things that are working well that 's just as important so that they know to hey let 's keep doing this and so like I know one thing I was pissed off that they made me go into the office for two weeks because uh, I, I work full remote, and um, I felt like it wasn 't necessary, and that maybe there 's other ways to tackle whatever it is that the reasons they want us to bring us in and I was vocal about that, and then the next sprint, we were back into our normal cadence and you know, they said, okay, well, we tried it and clearly they didn't like it. Uh, And so um, go from there. So, you know, there are things that you want to share the good and the bad.
0: That's a good point. Yeah. So a good scrum master will start off with, okay, everybody tell me what went right on this sprint. Uh, Tell me what went wrong on this sprint and hopefully the rights and wrongs are equal or at least you have more rights than wrongs. All right. I think we have harped onto that to death. I want to mention one other thing that, Uh, I kind of want to talk to you, Dylan, I think this is an interesting topic, is that we we briefly briefly touched upon the continuous integration, continuous deployment, and what that means for different teams. And you had rightfully pointed out during the episode that when you have continuous deployment, that's usually you're going directly to master. And I wanted to talk to you about a modification of that and what's worked with, with some teams that I've worked with. And that is is that we still have um, we, we we still have some tenets of going straight to production, but the way it works is um, do you guys use or maybe previous companies, we're not gonna talk about our current companies, but previous companies, do you guys use like the typical get branching strategy where you have a development branch, QA branch, a UAT or staging, and then masters for production?
1: Uh, it's, I've used that at a couple locations. I've also worked at places where you just have branches that get merged into master, and then you choose what build you want to release out into the world.
0: Yeah, so that's what I was going to talk about. Um, you ruined my thunder. Oh, <laughs> that's my. <so> that's just, <laughs> just, No, so, that's, so th- that's another way of doing a CI/CD pipeline that we didn't get to in this episode, is that what you do is you just have this master branch, and everybody pushes to master, And the way it works is master gets promoted to QA. When QA is ready, it gets promoted to your UAT, or sometimes called staging environment, and then that gets promoted into uh, production. And the advantages of that is that you don't have this this, uh, problem where you have like five, six different branches, and you're not sure what's in each branch. And then sometimes you'll have a hot fix. That has to go through all the branches to get to production really quickly. And sometimes one branch will be off the other branch. And then you have to have these huge merges. And I don't know if you've ever done this where you've had like hundreds and hundreds of, of pull requests.
1: I did it Friday, like literally it, <laughs> yeah, two days ago. Oh
0: yeah. So you had like merge conflict hell and like, it doesn't like, I think Git once you have like hundreds of changes or hundreds of, Pull requests it has problems.
1: Yeah, and it tends to deal with like my issues usually stem from so some of the we've done quite a bit of refactoring in our current app, but there is some of that older code that hasn't been touched but it got touched this time. But then you have thousand plus lines of HTML that get shifted by one or two lines and then you have boom you got you know hundreds of lines that you're going through and saying is this right? Did I get this right? And it's just like you go line by line. It's oh, it's awful <laughs>
0: You know what's happened to me recently too is that I don't know something happening with my prettier plugin or the way we set up prettier in our in our angular project. So all of a sudden, when I was saving, it wasn't auto formatting, or it was auto formatting it slightly different from the other developer. So when we did pull requests, it would be like, oh, there's like these a hundred changes in this one file, and all it is is just something shifted over because the prettier didn't save it correctly.
1: It that and, could be um, editor config. If you don't if so, if someone doesn't have editor config in their uh... If you, have it, if you have it in your project, but you don't have the extension, if they're using VS Code, because I've had that same issue, it doesn't actually take effect without the extension.
0: The editor config ex- Yeah, editor extension.
1: Config, config extension. I don't know if we'll that's the case, but that I've had that issue, and that was what it was for me. Yeah.
0: Good to know. So I was just saying that you could have, and we call this CICD, but it's not technically CICD, where... Instead of having a sprint, we're continuously pushing everything to master. It's getting to QA. QA is testing it, promoting it to our UAT or staging environment. With, and then once product and everything signs off on it, off on it, it goes to production. And then we grab the the next stuff off the top of the of the list of the backlog. And so you can get to a point where. You have all these automated tests running. Every time you're pushing code, you're pushing multiple code twice a day. You don't have to deal with these branches and then you're continuously pushing to master. Um, And so that's kind of one technique of doing the CI/CD pipeline. There is some disadvantages. If you're working on a big feature and it's in QA and they're not done testing it, but you have another feature that you need to push out, then you can be held up in QA. And there's a couple of ways you can get around that. One is using something called feature flagging. We actually looked into this. I was just at AWS reInvent, and there's like a ton of companies that do special feature flagging that'll hook into code in your front end where you can turn things on or off really easily. There's also ways you can roll it your own using config files. Um, You can also roll back changes from QA and push in your changes that you need to get out quicker. So there's a couple of ways of handling that by just having one branch.
1: Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of feature toggles. I didn't like them at first because they're it's an extra step in your code and oftentimes you have to go in eventually and remove the toggles, so there's a little bit of that. But I if it was up to me, everything would be feature toggled. I, I absolutely love it.
0: Is there any packages or libraries or services that you
1: use? Yeah, the service I've I've used a couple times now has been LaunchDarkly. They seem to be pretty big in in the space. And one benefit to future toggles, is not only be able to toggle things on and off, whether they're working or not, but they also allow you to do A-B testing where let's say I want to actually collect data on who's who's using it, or I only want to show this feature to 5% of the users and just see how they're using it, see if it's working right. So you don't necessarily have to release something out into the wild and be like, oh, cool! 100% of users saw that it blew up. Well, instead, you could, you know, with the toggle, you could give it to five percent, see if any anybody likes it, and or if if uh, not only if they like it, but if it's any good. And and you hear a lot uh, quite frequently now about like, oh, Facebook or YouTube are testing X amount of features with this with certain users. And the reason they're doing that is to, to gather data. See, hey, we think this is right, uh, but maybe maybe it's wrong. Let's see how people are using it, and then let's go back. Let's take it off the table and reiterate on it.
0: I have heard of them. That's excellent. I'll, I will uh, look into that more. We're trying to find one. I know, you know, like you mentioned Facebook and Google. I know an anecdote that I heard is that when you start at Facebook or Google, I think they said Facebook, you will be writing a line of code that is going to be pushed to production in your first week, week or two. And I'm almost guarantee that if you're pushing code to production in Facebook it's not going to all 2 billion people. They probably just, the, the new developers probably get to push code that gets turned on in, you know, people in North their, America.
1: Yeah, Their family and friends so they can see, see, exactly. look mom, I would have did that.
0: <laughs> exactly. And I think that lends itself to a sophisticated organization that you are able to do these feature flags, you're using a product like that, and then you have a DevOps organization that's Doing artifact promotion, things like that, because it can get quite complicated when you start deep, deep diving into the CI CD world. Um, I was just at AWS reInvent, which is uh, Amazon's really big developer conference every year, and I, and I heard all the things they're doing. I mean, Kubernetes, all the different services they offer, it makes a lot of sense. Everybody's containerizing their back end. I mean, we, we've been doing that for a while, but I think it's only been popular in the last few years. Um, let's move on. Let's talk about. Uh, let's change directions a little bit and talk about senior developers. We touched on this, I believe, a little bit in the in the imposter syndrome episode. But I kind of, I think this is a, a topic that we wanted to get to, and I didn't really, we didn't really expand on this much. And what makes a senior software developer? And I'd love to hear what you think about this, Dylan, because I think. In the past, when we think of people with experience in anything, like for example, an airplane airplane pilot, we talk about the amount of hours they have flown, and that is an indication of how much experience they have. So, if this person has ten thousand hours of flown hours, we know that they're probably a better pilot than if one guy that only has a thousand hours flown. In fact, you can't get to get your pilot license; you have to have a certain amount of hours flown in the air without an instructor or with an instructor depending on the certification to be actually considered a pilot. So in software development, obviously we're not, we're not flying anything, but it seems like that years of experience is not as important in some ways. And what I mean by that, um, well, let me ask you this, does having 10 years of experience no longer matter? And then how do we judge developers then without looking at the amount of years of experience they have?
1: Yeah, so I, I do think it's one factor. Um, and I would say, and I, I say this having not worked in other industries, so take this with a grain of salt, right? I'm not an expert on, but I, I would say that as far as software development goes, that years of experience is one factor that's weighed at a slightly lower scale than in other industries. Now, part of that is because our job is very skill-based, things that are testable, things that are knowledge-based that you could find out exactly where, not maybe not exactly, but you can get in the ballpark uh, of where individuals are.
0: Yeah, I think that, that's true. It is one gauge of someone's experience. But what I've seen is, is that there's a lot of junior developers come out, a lot of smart people like yourself that are coming out that have two, three, four years of experience that now are, are senior developers. And so in the past, we had these job openings that said senior developer, eight plus years of experience, or seven plus years of experience. And I still think that job ads really emphasize years of experience for senior developers. But it seems like it's not black and white that years of experience really equals senior developer anymore. And I think you've said before in the past, Dylan, that people have, you've seen senior developers that are still stuck or they have the title senior developer, but they're still stuck in that junior or mid-level tier thought process. So it feels like it's it's no longer, it doesn't matter as much as it does in other industries, but um, it's kind of gives me thought, uh, kind of takes me back a second to think about, well, then how do we gauge people when we hire people? How, as someone with me, who's on the opposite side of the coin, that has over 10 years of experience, how do I show an employer that, that the experience that I got is relevant to, to the job and that I would work better than someone that has maybe two years of experience, but they consider themselves a senior developer? Like, how, how do you rate that? And then if everybody's a senior developer after three years or four years or five years, how do we judge, how do we pay people? I don't know, it's just kind of an interesting topic that I'm thinking about.
1: Yeah, and I think it's one that's partially, uh, I don't want to call it an issue, but partially, uh, part part of the reason that it exists, or so this is even a question, is because the industry has grown so rapidly that as people have been, you know, compare, comparatively speaking to other professions that have been going at a very linear sort of growth or stagnating, software development has ex- exponentially grown grown and so have the candidates going into it. So the majority of candidates, like a, I'm pulling this number based off of Stack Overflows 2019 survey. 41% of all professional developers have been doing it for less than five years. And close to 70% have been less than nine. So it's and it's one of those items I think that typically in terms of years of experience is very heavily weighted in the front just to the nature of the job, which also brings up like, okay, well, maybe instead of doing 10 years for a senior, you know, you see roles at three years, five years, whatever it is, because almost half the candidates have left less than five years.
0: I think that's interesting. Yeah. So we have a lot of new people. I mean, if you look at React, React just came out six years ago. So, I mean, we can't have React developers 10 plus years of experience. Although a lot of job openings, they say they're looking for a senior developer, senior React developer they'll put in caveats that we want eight years of overall development experience, three plus years of React experience, two plus years of Node experience. And that's how they gauge if someone is a senior developer or not. I know when I've interviewed people, we've looked at years of experience and we have weeded out people that don't have enough years of experience as just an indicator that they're probably more junior, which might be unfair to a lot of people that could have easily done the job, but we didn't give them a chance because their resume shows they only had three years of experience and we were looking for people for eight plus years
1: of experience. Yeah. And I think every organization judges differently how they're going to evaluate candidates. Right. So, um, I personally am willing to give people more of a shot that have less years of experience if they have a track record of learning which i think is a very important trait to have in software development and by track record i mean i I can see through their actions their github their projects whatever it is that they have actively been attempting to improve and i can see it i, I don't care what they tell me like the people will tell you, i learn every day and like about uh, what i can actually see on my own but there are other people who we're not taking anybody that has less than five years experience. There are people who say, Hey, we're not taking anyone that doesn't have a bachelor's or a master's and it I would say generally speaking that sentiment has been going away where people are willing to consider people that maybe in the past they wouldn't have if they can, you know, if they have sufficient ways to test their skills.
0: But let's move on to I think this is gonna be our last topic today. And maybe two more topics. We'll see. Gatekeeping and software development. And what I mean by that is that people like to put labels on everyone, and you say, you know, you'd be like, you're a software developer, you're not a software developer, and so I've seen this where um, we don't want to gatekeep people. If someone just works on HTML and CSS, they're a developer. If you are a, uh, if you work in Python, you're a developer, but what I'm trying to get at is, should we do some sort of gatekeeping? For example, If you have not, if you're just starting to learn how to program, are you a programmer? Should we, I mean, what kind of gatekeeping do we put on this industry at all? Or should we have no gatekeeping at all? And that could also go to having a degree or not, which we used to be a gatekeeper for people getting into this industry, but it's becoming less and less.
1: It's funny, it reminds me of this uh, comment someone left the other day where, i obviously we know i don't have a degree and i i oftentimes will refer to myself as a software engineer and someone's like you're not a software engineer you don't have a degree i was like just because i don't and i responded back i was like just because i don't have a degree doesn't mean i'm not a engineer and he goes yeah, they said something along the lines of of like even uh even um you know trash trash guys can call themselves sanitation engineers that they want or some shit like that um but it kind of reminds me of that but I, so this is what I would say of this is um that I don't care what you call yourself <laughs> um and if someone's you working for somebody else isn't something that necessarily needs to find you. But if you if someone is paying you good money to build software for them, you're definitely falling into that, you know, you are engineering software, you're a programmer, you're a developer. If you are, you know, outside of work you're building something cool man have fun do that but we don't necessarily throw tags on anybody you know it, it helps when you're doing things professionally like I use LinkedIn I'm not a LinkedIn guy I play video games I'll go and refer to myself as a video gamer like it's it's just these are hobbies these are things and if you're being a, if you're building software as a hobby and you can program you could program I wouldn't necessarily define myself as a programmer until I've made that a profession because that to me is a this is a profession term
0: i know engineering in some countries requires a specific degree or certification so technically you cannot call yourself a software engineer unless you have a certification because that is something you can put on your resume and and it it signifies that you've completed something but in the u.s it's pretty lax at least in the engineering side
1: yeah, I also call myself a coding God, but I'm not a God, just in case anybody, <laughs> anybody was curious um I, I again, I think this falls into semantics. I think this is one of those things that people like to put labels on themselves and others, and it's probably not healthy to do that. and also it does it does it really matter at the end of the day? Maybe
0: it's more of a mind shift thing because once you start thinking you are a programmer, then you start acting like more like a programmer. So it's more what of a it, What does that mean?
1: <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? No. A, like you write code? Like, yeah, if you're programming, you write code. But what does it mean? Do you act more like a programmer?
0: Well, we have these labels. And if we like it or not, we identify as certain things in our life. So some of us identify as as uh, a programmer. Some identify as a gamer, like you mentioned. But once you identify in your, in your mind, you're psychologically set to think a certain way. Then you start behaving certain things. You have you take on certain traits that you the label that you put on yourself hits you with. So if you're a programmer, you're probably more likely to be in technology, and you're probably more likely to try to obviously program. And so, but when you know if you don't think you're a programmer and you haven't put that label on yourself, and it's just a hobby, then you approach things differently. I guess that's what I mean. So, maybe that's when you can kind of technically call yourself a programmer. It's not something someone else tells you. It's just when you make that shift.
1: okay <laughs> <laughs> i guess- I guess i'm trying to i guess what my where my confusion comes from is. What we were trying to get out out of this, like should we have gatekeeping, like what is the harm of the gatekeeping and versus what is the what is the benefit- the pros and the cons of gatekeeping? I'm still confused about that because to me it's it's one of those items that what are you you know how is it hurting you or how is it hurting other people or vice versa benefiting and i I still don't see it
0: I think the idea behind gatekeeping, and I don't agree with this is that. We want to limit the amount of people inside this industry to make it more exclusive than some people would think it to be that you know we can get paid more, we would have less competition, that it takes a certain skill that you need to become a developer. And then if we have these gatekeepers like college education or computer science degree or years of experience that would prevent we would have less people in the overall pool. We would have higher quality people. We would have people that do a better job. Um, okay. That's the same reason like some states have raw laws that you can't become a hairdresser unless you get a certification. And that costs thousands of dollars for hairdressers to go through a 10-week or 12-week school and they have to get a certification. And some other people would say, it was like, well, why can't we just have everyone be a hairdresser? Why can't you just self-teach yourself to be a hairdresser? So, I mean, nobody's dying getting a haircut
1: there is gatekeeping. It's just on the, um, the corporation level or the company level where companies have the ability to get the talent that they want. Now, if they want the best developers, they have to pay the most. They have to be the most attractive. They have to, you know, if they want to snipe me away from my current job, uh, if that, if I fell into that category, that will never happen. That will yeah, happen. never. I'm a loyal, no, uh, I know. you are, right. no, uh, but, uh, you would have to make it an attractive offer, and so there is gatekeeping. If you if you if you run a, a company, there are things that you can literally say: "We're not hiring anyone without a PhD. We're not hiring anyone without seven to eight years' experience in these roles." And you can do that, but there is a supply and a demand associated with it. Part of the reason that the gatekeeping, as I, now I understand what we're talking about here, we're talking about haters. This is I figured it out people who hate that other people are coming into their industry. That's how I see it. Um, that. There's a huge demand for software engineers that is still not being met. And yeah, you're going to have some people that slide in and see an easy payday. But oftentimes, those people are going to stay in the lower rungs, and they're not going to progress their career. But you're also going to let a lot of people in who are hardworking, who have the skills. But there are ways to gatekeep. I don't know that we need to, and I'm more so, this is not going to go like a, conservative liberal thing but i more so believe that we want to have less rules in place and leave it to the individual companies of how they want to run their business
0: as long as not discriminatory of course i mean they're giving everyone a fair shot
1: is it is it not discriminatory not to hire someone because they don't have a bachelor's degree because i i'm hoping by 2025 that that's a thing (laughs) someday 15 years
0: ago that was pretty much the norm you had to have at least a college degree and most I, job openings um equivalent experience was always there but it wasn't as important as it is now
1: yeah it's it's a it's interesting what you can say what things are like okay to be discriminatory against because it it is i mean any any you filter you're discriminating that's all it is it's it's just a you know, I'm, I'm filtering based off of this uh but uh so like
0: filtering for years of experience is probably not that bad but filtering on college is probably a little bit worse. And then, of course, completely racist if you filter on anything like yeah. you know, your age or
1: your race or anything but like that. You are discriminating against people with less years of experience, which is kind of the intent, right?
0: But most companies would say that's fine. Like that's, you yeah. want people with more experience. There's not an easy way to determine if someone is a really great developer because beyond the... The exceptions to the rule, which there always will be most people that have a year of experience are probably really junior and they probably can't take on a senior developer role um so i understand that all right so that's that's all i had um do you want to comment on any anything else
1: i did and i i know you don't necessarily want to talk about this so i'll make it brief but there seems to be and this is a, a tech industry issue as a whole i would say but um, it's been prevalent in sort of the YouTube and the sort of software engineering um, public space, I guess, where you have developers like Eric and myself and um, you know, people on podcasts and YouTube channels. There seems to be a little bit of a lack of morality in recent times where we have developers who are plagiarizing where we have, or I should say developers, I'm trying to keep this very vague, so we don't call anybody out, because that's not what this is about. It's about raising questions and bringing things to the forefront of people's minds, where we have people who are plagiarizing, we have people who are perhaps doing shady business tactics, we have people who are um, just being mean and rude a lot of times uh, there's just a lot of and and then you have on the larger scale, you have companies who it seems like every week we hear about a company doing some shady illegal stuff or you know um doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing like legally or just even morally and i i i'm not one here to sit up on a pedestal and tell you that i'm perfect i haven't made mistakes I think we all make mistakes, and i don't think you should judge somebody by those mistakes and i also don't think you should you know there's been developers who have been vocal and had a strong stance that they have been willing to stand up for and say listen i can say whatever i want doesn't mean that you have to sponsor what i'm saying doesn't mean that you have to agree with it and there's nothing immoral about that and if there's consequences with, because because that that's fine they i don't think we should look down upon these people i'm more so talking about people who are really just doing immoral stuff in in my eyes and i don't want to necessarily judge anybody by one actions but one action but when it starts becoming actions start thinking about are these people of character and how they affect the community because i I do think in general that we are who we surround ourselves with and now in, in you know 2019 that means even digitally even people that you know there's a lot of people who i i don't know very well in the sense like i've never met them but i have conversations with them frequently like eric and i have never met each other in person but here we are doing a podcast together we're working on projects together, so are talking you know we we've gone into business transactions we've done all this stuff together so i i'm very concerned that there's a bit of a moral compass issue. And I think part of it is because we're engineers. I think as logical people, sometimes we can sit down and we can evaluate the cost of a relationship and ways of pros and cons. If I hand this in, I do this illegal stuff, Was the cost benefit analysis? And I don't think that's a healthy thing to do.
0: I think it's also just the part of the YouTube Drama world that we live in now, where creators call out other creators, where, you know, they know if you say something bad about someone, that it will get a lot of views. They know if they create a controversy, they take an idea someone else had, or that could also cause views and and bring up your perceived, I don't know, influence. So I think that has something to do with it too. And I've seen some of the things rolling around, which most of the time I don't look at. And I think Dylan, you're the same way, but it pops up on our feeds. And then all this controversy comes out. I kind of, uh, you know, I I like to, to sometimes like anybody else, it's like watching a car wreck. You kind of watch it. You're like, whoa, what's happening? What's, What's happening here? But I think for the most part, I try to stay out of some of those controversies and, and, uh, And I see where both sides are coming from on some of them.
1: Yeah. And my concern is not necessarily with us. Like we're grown ass men. We've, we've been working in the industry for a while. My concern is more about some younger, you know, maybe the people are like 18 to 25 or even younger that are, you know, they're these people, a lot of times they look up to them. They're like, man, look how great he, she is doing. This is great. I should listen to their advice. They're killing it. Meanwhile, they've lied about how they got there. They've misinformed. They're spreading, you know, false information, and not only that, they're showing people what is an acceptable way to act. And I, I, you know, I feel like a grandfather having to have this even conversation. It's just like something my grandparents would sit me down and talk to me about. But it, it's, it's disgusting to me that the I'll give you, I'll give you a fun thing I learned um, in one of the Chris Hawks videos. watched that one of the top ten most uh, followed developers on github is a known plagiarist someone who has plagiarized and been proven to plagiarize on numerous occasions but literally one of the uh, i think the seventh or eighth, something like that followed developers and uh, or um you know individuals and it's a unfortunate thing that that is the case in the world and some people don't know no and it's it's Misleading. It's it's like telling people who want to become developers, "Hey, I can teach you to be a developer in thirty days. It's just going to cost you two thousand dollars. I'll teach you." You know, it's one of those things where a lot of it is uh, snake oil, and people are willing to people are willing to veer from morality way too often and by way too much. That it, it's it's upsetting.
0: Maybe money has a lot to do with it too. Kind of a, a bad recipe money and greed and some of these things um i don't know
1: yeah i mean those are the things that get you to do it right um you know there's there's reasons very few people are just bad for the sake of being bad they they want to get something out of it they want the maybe they like the fame aspect maybe they like the money aspect you know it's it's one of those items where there, there are reasons for these bad choices but And again, it's not that I I want to call anybody out individually or that I think there's no redemption. But I I, I do think as as individuals, as content creators, as just people who are software engineers and spying engineers, that we have to think about what it is that we're doing. And if we're setting an example, we're going to be proud of, right? And that's not going to say we're not going to make mistakes. I've made plenty. Um, But at some point, these things become character defining rather than mistakes.
0: For sure. Do you think some of these things will haunt people in the future, future jobs, future employment people are, I mean, we're living in the age of social media, everything you and me say on this podcast, someone could potentially look at one day and not like,
1: I, I think so. But I also think at some point that a lot of these, a lot of people that, we're sort of inadvertently referencing they have no interest in working in their field anymore they're much more interested in being youtubers and they've this is sort of the path that they have taken so this doesn't necessarily care but it it will for those of you who maybe fall off down the road and they're not making as much money i can tell you from my channel and i i don't really have a channel that's very spicy and pretty much everything i've made has been 100 percent created or anything i have created I've, i've given um oh, hey, this is a resource I use and dedicated to that. That that has cost me jobs just because employers are sometimes weary of someone who puts stuff out into the world because they're a reflection of their their value as, as well.
0: All right, I think that wraps it up for today. If you guys have any thoughts on anything we've talked about, feel free to check out Dylan's YouTube channel. Leave a comment on there. Check out our Code Tech and Caffeine. Leave a comment there. Let us know.
1: Yeah. Make sure you guys leave some comments and share and let everyone know. And um, I think it's season two. I think we should make this a thing where season two or every season we do one, like, let's address some criticism. Because I think it makes it, you know, you and I are having a conversation, but so so are other people listening to this. Hey guys, thanks for watching. If you want to find more about what I'm up to, go to DylanIsrael.com. And if you want to know what I'm up to, you can check out my website
0: at eric.video. If you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us out. And if you do, you might even be featured on our next episode. Don't forget to check out the website at selftaughtornot.com. From there, you can sign up for a mailing list where we give away free courses and a bunch of cool stuff. And we'll also let you know when the next episode comes out. And finally, if you didn't know, we have a Facebook group. It's called Code Tech and Caffeine. We have over 10,000 members. And you can find the link at selftaughtornot.com. So come join us. We have tons of developers willing to help you guys, mentor you guys. Check it out. Just make sure you go to selftaughtornot.com and check out the Tech and Caffeine link. Thanks and take care.